Hello and welcome to our Game of the Year episode of the Switch Focus podcast. This will be our final episode of 2017 and we just wanted to take this opportunity to break from our usual format and recognise some of our favourite Switch titles and hopefully some of yours as well. Uh, We wish to emphasise that these are our own opinions. We encourage our listeners to share their own favourites with us via Twitter or the website via comments uh, and we'll continue engaging with you as we always do. Okay, so the first category we have is favourite announcement. Uh, thanks to the internet, developers and publishers now have a direct line to fans through social media. Nowhere is this clearer than in the massively successful Nintendo Directs, which have been so successful that a Direct often supplants Nintendo's presence entirely at trade shows, and nobody seems to mind. Teasing an upcoming indie release by tweeting a screenshot of it running on a undock switch has been a popular tactic. Uh, so these are some of our favourite announcements from developers and publishers this year. Uh, let's start with our runners-up first. So uh, for for this one, I went with the Doom and Wolfenstein 2 one-two punch on one of the Nintendo Directs, and uh, Wasteland 2 director's cut teased by Brian Fargo, showing that uh, screenshot running on a undock switch. So well, since we're doing the runner-ups first, um, I think the Breath of the Wild trailer was probably one of um, my favourites this year. Um, although I suppose it's going to be hard to pick one, but the Breath of the Wild, I guess every single trailer announcement for the Champions Ballad DLC, for the actual game, for the season pass, they were all amazing. Um, just Breath of the Wild was a really special game for me this year. Um, so I was just really, I guess, emotionally involved in it from when they first announced it on the Switch. So that's why it was so meaningful to me. That and the Bayonetta announcements that both 1 and 2 and 3 were all going to come to the Switch. So Bayonetta's been like a long time crush of mine. <laughs> and also the franchise is really cool. So um, I thought her announcements were amazing. For me, I really only have one runner-up and that was the August Nindies, the Nintendo Indie Direct, which was just phenomenal from beginning to end and really showed all the support that Nintendo has managed to get from the indie developers, which is obviously something they've struggled with in the past. And, you know, step aside, PlayStation Network, we've got a new champion. Okay, so the winner for this category for me uh, was one that Ginny just mentioned in our runner-ups. My, it was the Bayonetta announcements of uh, 1 and 2 coming in February, and then if that wasn't good enough, 3 coming to, to Switch at some point. Uh, I just love how casually they dropped this in on a completely unrelated event. I thought that was really cool. Uh, so what what won this category for you, Ginny? For me, it was probably definitely the Super Mario Odyssey um, announcements where they first had um, that trailer that was mostly the New Dock City song and the New Dock City production with Pauline. That was my favourite. Something about the musicals. I mean, I was a musical theatre kid. So that's probably why it sort of really hit home for me. But just, I think, hearing Jump Up Superstar in its almost in its entirety for the first time, it just really captured me. And I'll talk about it later on again during the episode. 
but that New Donk City moment has had so many, has one of my many favourites across multiple categories. So definitely I have to say Super Mario Odyssey's second announcement. For me, there is no other choice. It was the final trailer for Breath of the Wild, which they put out right at the beginning of the year in their first Nintendo Direct of the year. It was the capper of their big reveal of what exactly the Nintendo Switch is, when it's going to be available, how much it's going to cost, and then at the end, this is what you can play on it. And it's a phenomenal trailer, not only just because it made you really want to play Zelda, but also because it was complete smoke and mirrors, it's complete misrepresentation of what the game actually is. It really showcased the (laughs) memories, but the memories are all things that you experience in hindsight. You know, I, I was looking at this as like, oh my god. We're going to have a Zelda game that actually has a plot. It's amazing, which is not the game we got. But I was totally sold on it. I really wanted to see what made Zelda just break down on Link's shoulder like that. It was an amazing trailer. I still watch it every now and then. It still gives me chills, even though I know entirely how fabricated it is now. I love it. It's definitely my number one choice. Uh, So now we'll move on to our favorite moment. As much as we might love a video game as a whole, it's often a single, crystallised moment which sticks with us when we're done. That moment serves as a touchstone, the fondest memory we return to when we recall that video game, and through which all of our other memories and feelings spread outwards. And these are some of our favourite touchstone moments this year. Uh, For me, my runners-up in this category were the opening to Zelda, where you, you leave the Shrine of Resurrection for the first time and see this sprawling, green, lush world out in front of you and realising that you could explore every inch of it. Uh, My second one was seeing Doom running in handheld mode for the first time, (laughs) which is just incredible, really, even though it's technically a downport compared to the other versions. Uh, I still can't believe it runs on this system, to be honest. So, yeah, they were mine. Uh, Andrew, what was your runner-ups? My runner-up is the New Dog City Festival, definitely, which is a really creative uh, idea uh, where you, well, I'll let somebody else elaborate on this later, but uh, just playing that level and just with the music playing in the background and then at the end of it you find Pauline playing with her band and you can go up on stage and dance with her. It was just a delightful moment. Uh, I was not as in love with Super Mario Odyssey as other people were, but that moment I absolutely loved. It's one of my top moments of the year. And also for my other runner-up, you're playing a Switch game, and you've been playing it for way too long, and you don't want to stop. You know, with any other console game, you have to pause the game, and you have to go to the bathroom. With the Switch, you don't have to do that. You just take it out of the dock, and you take it into the bathroom with you. The very first time you experience that, we all have, don't deny it, it's pure magic. And that is my other runner-up for, uh, for this category, is your first bathroom break. Oh, I'm gosh. just, I'm just, I'm just amazed it wasn't me that did this one. But yeah. <laughs> uh, and Ginny, your runner-ups? Um, well, uh, using the switch for the first time in the bathroom was pretty magical. Um, but I don't know if it made my uh, my top three memorable moments with the switch. Um, for me, definitely as well as Andrew mentioned earlier, Super Mario Odyssey's New Dark City. Um, for me, it was just sort of like a very climactic moment in the game. You literally had both the music and the platforming build to an incredibly climactic sequence. You would have the level sort of ebb and flow along with the music. 
and everything from the environment to the pacing it was just perfect like i feel like it was paced incredibly well um obviously that wasn't the case with the entire game there were some dips here and there but i think new donk city was probably like just the peak of level engineering for the game and it was just i'm sure it's it's an incredibly memorable moment for a lot of people apart from myself um my other runner-up this is was not on andy or andrew's list um but this was um the very unexpected rat battle in golf story between some octogenarians from a fancy country golf club and some young quote-unquote gangsters from your home town golf club and it was just incredibly unexpected incredibly australian very tongue-in-cheek i just thought it was it kind of hit me out of nowhere and it was a very nice surprise to cap off what i think is one of the best indie games of the year so those are my runner-ups cool so the winner of this category for me was something you both mentioned which was the new donk city festival Mm. um i don't want to go too much into it because i think people really need to experience this for themselves Mm. but just the the combination of the right choice of music the it was almost like a, a celebration of of mario gameplay and it was just completely magical so yeah per, easily my favorite gaming moment this year um mine is also one that you you had already mentioned um i feel like there's a lot of crossover here with our favorites but i think that just means that we've all got very good taste um so for me my favorite moment was definitely the opening of breath of the wild just when the music kind of swells and you're running out of the shrine of resurrection and you get that panning shot that you described earlier andy of the entire world seeing what you can explore i think i took maybe 10 screenshots i mean they all look the same in the camera roll it's just that same green expanse but i just wanted i just felt so compelled to capture that moment so that's why i've picked it. it was a very arresting moment and it was the first game i did play on the switch so i think it's just a culmination of all those memories for me at the same time that made it my favorite of the year yeah, my number one moment of the year was also Breath of the Wild leaving the Shrine of Resurrection for the first time. Breath of the Wild opens up, where Link wakes up in the Shrine of Resurrection. He's brought back into consciousness by Zelda's voice, which is a very common occurrence in the entire series. So it starts off very traditional, <laughs> but there's there's no sound. That, well, there's sound. There's no music when you're inside the shrine. But then you climb your way out. It's a very small area, and you go out through the tunnel, and you go out onto the plateau, and just the music starts to rise up suddenly and you're realizing at this moment you're being introduced to the world and Link runs out onto this vista. You can see the entire world stretching out. There's Death Mountain on the right. There's uh, the Snow Mountain on the left. And you've got Hyrule Castle in the middle and you realize, oh my gosh, I can actually explore everything here. This, this is not just a backdrop. This is These are areas that actually exist and it just really brought back to mind like memories of the original Legend of Zelda or A Link to the Past, which also felt similarly when they came out, just as these massive environments that you could explore that were there for you to discover. And this is the next evolution. This is the next step. It's the best sandbox game ever made, as far as I'm concerned, and this is the moment that sells that. Okay, so we'll move on to our next category, which is Biggest Surprise. (laughs) 
So the Switch itself has been a surprise, while we all hoped it would be a success for Nintendo after the mediocre performance of the Wii U, few were betting that it would be the phenomenon that it has become. While it's clear that this success has caught some publishers by surprise, others were sold by Nintendo's initial pitch before the public really knew what the Switch really was, and spent years working on special, unlikely projects for the platform. These are a few of our unlikely releases which surprised and delighted us. Uh, So we'll start with with the runners-ups again. Uh, Mine was both Golf Story and Cat Quest. Uh, a golf RPG was not something that I knew I wanted until I, I saw the charm and the ingenuity behind the Australian-made golf story. Uh, and I also didn't know that I wanted a RPG with cats as the main characters. Uh, what about you two? What made your runner-up lists? Um, I had Battle Chef Brigade on my runner-up list for biggest surprise because, um, as I mentioned when we talked about this in the Battle Chef Brigade-themed podcast... Um, I just thought it would be, you know, like a traditional Japanese JRPG. There'd be some, you know, match-free elements here and there in a minigame or something. Um, might be a bit light on a conventional story. But Bella Chef Brigade just blew me away. Um, I loved it. Part of the surprise was just how much, um, how much it charmed me, how beautiful it was. It was just probably one of, again, my favorite indie titles this year. Um, and... I really, really enjoyed it. All the anime influences were perfect. Um, and that really took me by surprise. Another big surprise for me was the fact that I actually played Mario and Rabbids Kingdom Battle and enjoyed it. Um, I remember seeing the trailer for it. I think it was during E3 for the first time. And I just thought, what on earth is this game? You know, this is impossible. They're making a Rabbids game. There's, it looks like it's XCOM. And Mario is there. Like I just, I was convinced it would not succeed at all. I couldn't see the appeal myself. But then I picked it up, gave it a go, and I really, genuinely enjoyed it. And of course, the team that made it, you know, they've done a stellar job. They've obviously been very passionate about it, put so much heart into it, and it really shows. So for me, my two runner-up surprises were Battle Chef Brigade and Mario and Rabbits. My first runner-up is definitely Battle Chef Brigade. Uh, unlike Ginny, I was not surprised by what it was. It, it turned out to be exactly what I expected it to be from the trailer. But what I was surprised by uh, was the depth that was actually there uh, as far as the dishes you could make and the different methods you could use to build up your point total in each of the competitions. Uh, So I was expecting Battleship Brigade to be an interesting experience. What caught me by surprise was that it is actually very, very good, to the point that I think it's one of the best indie games released this year. Uh, And my second choice uh, would definitely be Night Terrors, which is a $3 game I bought, uh, mostly because it was $3. And as it turns out, it's an incredibly well-made game that is perfect for just grinding away a few minutes when you have a few minutes spare. Uh, I have done everything there is to do it already and which in an endless runner is quite a thing for me to say because normally i play these games for 15 minutes and i'm done but night terrors kept me involved through the whole thing i love it it's a great game it's probably the best value this year as far as what's been released on switch in terms of what you're paying versus what you're getting out of it and then so our winners for this category now i'm ashamed to say i haven't actually beaten my my chosen one here but it's mario and rabbits uh, I think the main reason it was a surprise is because when rumours were spreading that there was going to be a Mario and Rabbids crossover, literally nobody wanted it. <laughs> yeah. And and then when they announced it and they showed it off, 
and people saw like how passionate the the lead de- designer was on this game, how well it played. It, everyone was just all in, I think, from that point on, and it's got the gameplay to back it up as well. It's a great little tactical shooter. It's not as childish in terms of mechanics as people thought it would be. There's some serious tactics there. Uh, and it's actually made me reconsider my stance on the rabbits. I, I, like the, the Mario-themed ones are amazing. Like, Rabbid Peach is just hilarious. And, yeah, I, I haven't quite finished it, but I can't wait to go back to it. It's, it's such a great game. I also chose for my number one Mario plus Rabbids Kingdom Battle just because the concept is an acid trip. I mean, uh, <laughs> I would not be surprised to learn that this game was conceptualized on drugs because in the <laughs> opening, uh, this is probably a reference nobody's going to get, but like the, the distaff counterpart of Kid Vid, who was like the mascot of the Burger King Kids Club in the 90s in the United States. For some reason, there's a girl who looks just like Kid Vid, who's invented these glasses, these goggles, that when worn by a certain rabbit, let them manifest things into the real world and combine them together. And as a result of this, Mario needs to pick up a gun and start shooting rabbits. It doesn't make any sense, and not just because it's nonsense, but because it's actually good. So definitely my number one surprise for the year, Mario plus rabbits. Um, my number one surprise was actually Golf Story. Um, as someone who is a very passionate hater of the actual sport golf after being forced to play it for many years as a grumpy child. Um, <laughs> I was actually surprised I liked Golf Story at all because I hate golf. Um, so, I mean, Golf Story was just a gem for me. It was... I knew it was locally developed. Um, I knew it would be a bit tongue-in-cheek. You know, I expected to like golf story just on those things alone i thought you know maybe i just put up with the fact that it was well part of it was about playing golf but i actually found myself enjoying everything including all the inane bits that involve golfing i think the mini games were very smart the side quests were hilarious just each individual golf course and all the characters had just so much individual personality the game was just chock full of all this stuff um and yeah, it really blew me away. So yeah, I was surprised by both A, the quality, and B, that I actually finished it and enjoyed it. So Golf Story definitely takes this one home for me. I think they did a great job on it. Now, there's one here that I, I didn't think I would have much of a, an opinion on, because I'm just not into it that much, but this is the award for Best Multiplayer. <laughs> As we know, multiplayer has been an integral part of video gaming since its inception, but the growing prevalence of the internet functionality and the expense of additional controllers has made multiplayer an increasingly isolated experience. The Switch declares a reverse of this trend with less emphasis on the internet accessibility and a play-anywhere philosophy that encourages more in-person co-op. These are a couple of our favourite multiplayer games of the year, whether to play online or just on the couch. Uh, So for me, again, we'll start with the runners-up. I went with uh, Snipperclips, which is a fun and friendship-testing local co-op game. Uh, Me and the missus played it quite a bit in the the early days of the Switch. Uh, Good fun. We probably should go back to it at some point. Uh, And then my other runner-up was Splatoon 2. I am not very big on online shooters these days. Certainly not as much as I used to be. 
I hate communicating with people. I hate working in tandem with other people. Uh, and Splatoon, without communication, manages to allow me to do both those things and just not in the way that I hate. And I, I, I love it for that. Um, so what about you two? What were your runner-ups in multiplayer? Um, well, my runner-ups were both games that have tested my relationship with my flatmates and my close friends. Um, so one of those is Overcooked Special Edition. So I think one of the first games that was out on the Switch and one of the first multiplayer ones apart from Snipper Clips. So my flat snapped that one up pretty quickly. And um, while we're normally quite proficient at cooking in real life, um, it was a complete hot mess when all of us got together to play Overcooked. But I mean, just everything about it from the completely ridiculous premise. um, I won't spoil it for anyone just in case no one's played it yet. But I mean, the whole starting to the game and why you need to do what you're doing and why food is to be cooked and what your role is it's just completely bonkers you know and i love it for that it doesn't try to be serious it is just it knows it's a ridiculous multiplayer game um that will test your relationship with your loved ones and your family and it delights in it um i find the game difficult frustrating but also endlessly entertaining and so that's why it's on my list my other runner-up is Death Squared, yet again another game which will test your ability to stay friends with people that you play the game with. Um, I got Death Squared mainly because um, it had been advertised as a game that people who didn't normally game would enjoy, and I do have some friends who are not of the gaming variety, so I thought we'd give it a go. Um, it's just incredibly smart. Um, there's so many game modes. It's challenging without being, I guess, reliant on having to have played video games before anyone can pick it up and have a good time with it um so for that reason Squad is also on my list and that is it for me for my runners up for my first runner up i picked as well as Ginny, overcooked special edition uh it is a game where you work as a line cook in a kitchen but very quickly, uh, actually almost from the outset, where uh, you're trying to save the world from Armageddon through your cooking skills, uh, it presents <laughs> very unusual situations where you're cooking in. Uh, I think probably my favorite part is where you're cooking on a pirate ship and the rocking mm, of the yeah. boat will knock all of your tools around in different places. And so you and your fellow chefs have to position yourself in the right places in order to keep up with the demands being made on you on the dishes you have to serve it is playable solo i don't think that's the way you want to play it it's a local co-op only game and the best way you can play it is to get one or more of your best friends together and work together towards doing it which is what i did the weekend it came out i invited a good friend of mine over we sat down we beat the whole game in one sitting it's great fun uh it's would be one of the best multiplayer games i've ever played except it's local co-op only which i think is a mistake but moving on um my other runner-up is mario kart 8 deluxe because it's mario kart 8 which is one of the best games on the wii u unfortunately most people did not get a chance to play it but it's converted over to the switch and it has all the battle modes put back in and it has far more interesting online modes uh, I don't need to describe Mario Kart. Most people who play video games know what Mario Kart is. Mario Kart 8 is by far the best Mario Kart ever made. So, of course, it lands on a best multiplayer list. So, moving on to our winners for this category. 
Uh, I went for Rocket League, which has been an absolute delight since I picked it up. Uh, despite my early complaints about the visuals, it plays like a dream. Uh, and it also, like Splatoon, encourages me to be able to, be able to play and be able to take part in, in the team aspect without actually having to communicate with people. Uh, and it's just a bit mad, which is what you want from multiplayer. <laughs> it's, it's fun. <laughs> Uh, so let's, let's start with Andrew. What was your winner for the multiplayer category? My number one multiplayer game for the Switch right now, first year, therefore this is the best game you can possibly own if you want to play multiplayer, is Resident Evil Revelations 2. Now, Resident Evil, since Resident Evil 4, has kind of been struggling with its identity. Every game is a little different. They don't really seem to know what they want to do with the series anymore. As far as I'm concerned, Raid Mode, which was introduced in Revelations and then refined upon in Revelations 2, is the smartest thing they've done with the series since Resident Evil 4. Uh, It is mostly a shooter, but it's also an RPG. You work cooperatively with another player to defeat a horde of monsters before you yourself get overwhelmed, and... It is just pure fan service. There's all kinds of guns you can unlock. There's more characters than just appear in Revelations. If you have a favorite character from the series, they are probably unlockable in Revelations too. If you are into horde modes at all, if you're into Resident Evil at all, you will probably enjoy Revelations too. You should definitely check it out. Um, so my favorite pick for best multiplayer, probably the game that I play the most, um, is Splatoon 2. So... Um, Splatoon 2 is a game that all of my friends thought we'd get together and pick up when it came out. Um, and it just, it's got so much to give still, even though it's been out for quite a while compared to other Switch games. Um, from the Splatfest, which I really enjoy, um, the fan bases, the game is built around characters like Pearl and Marina and Sheldon and all the rest. And just how basically every other week there's new weapons, there's new clothes, like they're trying to change the meta up and there's just so much work constantly being put into maintaining Splatoon 2's multiplayer and the game's overall meta are just, it's amazing. I love it. Um, I do really enjoy shooting games, which is probably why I've gravitated towards Splatoon 2 in this fashion. But it's got that nice blend of cute, uh, creepy, um, lethal that I enjoy. So, for that reason, Splatoon is going to be voted as my favourite multiplayer game this year on the Switch. Okay, so moving on to best story. Uh, A good plot in a video game can contextualise game design and create characters the player can emphasise and connect with, driving them along to the next story beat. It's a shame that some video games treat plot as an afterthought or a necessary evil. But for here, for best story, we recognise those video games which went the extra mile to draw players in, not just through engaging game design, but also through competent narrative design as well. Uh, So runners up, I went with Thimbleweed Park, which is one hell of a takedown of games development, of games itself, of game mechanics. Uh, I just, I was endlessly impressed by the final third and how the story panned out in that one. Uh, My other one is Breath of the Wild, while it's not a particularly in-depth story or or wordy story, it tells you a lot through environment, through visual storytelling, through environmental storytelling, uh, and I think that that is often as important as the words that someone produces on on a keyboard. 
so they were my picks. Uh, what about you, Andrew? Uh, I do describe myself as a video game critic slash analyst, whatever word you want to use, who's more focused on character and plot than maybe other people are. So I think my choices are going to surprise people because there were several uh, narrative games released on the Switch this year, and I, to my shame, didn't play any of them. So my choices are going to be a little more mainstream, but that's just the way it is. Uh, My first pick, it's Breath of the Wild. I echo what Andy said. Uh, There's great stuff in here uh, as far as environmental storytelling which I think is probably the best thing that a video game can do as far as telling a story because the ability to exist in the environment and explore it at your leisure lets you tell a story through implication and through what characters are doing and what they're not doing in a way that film or text can never really capture. So I think the best example is when you get to Hyrule Castle, you discover these big pillars have erupted around the castle and you don't really know what those are but if you're paying attention in other cutscenes you see that those are actually the vaults that the guardians were kept in and after calamity Ganon makes his move those actually erupted out of the ground and so you're literally seeing the scars inflicted on the land from calamity Ganon's attack and they're still there so that's kind of terrifying in a way and Also in the realm of environmental storytelling, I've got to talk about Elder Scrolls V Skyrim, which I think has some of the best environmental storytelling of any game ever made. I don't think I get enough credit for that. For one really good example, there's a small town you can find where there's no mothers. There's lots of children, there's lots of dads, but there's no mothers there. And it's an unusually fertile area of where everything else around it is experiencing a famine. And if you start poking around in the village leader's house enough, you find out that there's a shrine there to one of the Daedric princes. So if you think about it enough, there's no quest in here that directs you to solve this mystery or anything. It's just something you have to observe and think about, is this community has been sacrificing its women to have a fertile crop, which is terrifying. And there's absolutely nothing in the game to direct you to discover that. There's nothing you can do to solve it. It's just what is happening. Um, well, similar to the both of you, Breath of the Wild was also one of my, one of my runners-up for basically the same reasons. Um, for me, it sort of just felt like it was so removed from what I'd known of Zelda games. Um and of course in terms of the storytelling as you both have already mentioned it's mostly done through the environment through encountering characters through just traversing the actual land itself and finding landmarks and and withered things and remnants of the old Hyrule um, but I think just the fact that you had to the fact that you were basically encouraged to seek out all this narrative input by yourself and I found that really really great i mean i always felt compelled to seek out another landmark or to try and figure out why this building looked that way or what the building might look like in the past and just seeing all these ruins around hyrule seeing the things that people do now to survive and seeing you know where monster is and where the lost woods are and just things like that seeing all these natural landmarks having been corrupted or changed in some way um they always made me so curious and I feel like because the game encouraged that sense of curiosity so well, I think most of us figured out the plot and went well and far beyond 
move on all the memories on all the shrines not because we needed new items or needed more hearts at least not me personally i just wanted to see what happened next or what had happened and so i think for the game's ability to drive so much narrative momentum despite not actually giving you much of actual story in your present timeline it was really really impressive so for me one of my runners up another runner-up for me was i am setsuna um, it was a JRPG, is a JRPG on the eShop, I think often a bit criminally underlooked compared to other bigger JRPGs that are on there, um, on there, um, such as uh, Xenoblade Chronicles 2. Um, but I mean, I Am Setsuna is a gem, a real sort of throwback to 90s RPGs in terms of its very linear narrative, um, but it tells an incredibly solemn story very well. It's got all the usual JRPG cliches that you can expect, but it doesn't feel ham-fisted or overdone. It just feels incredibly somber, incredibly meaningful. And I think it's an incredibly humanizing game. Um, I really recommend playing um, I Am Setsuna. It's really something else when it comes to JRPGs. And if you have tried the Lost Sphere demo and you're into it, um, I would definitely give this game a shot. It's got an excellent story and it really, really, really knows how to make you feel something. Okay, and on to our category winners. Uh, I opted for uh, one that came in late in the year, actually. Uh, Opus, The Day We Found Earth. It's a very short story uh, focusing on a robot who's been tasked with refinding Earth like years and years after the... The humans have left it to try and help cure a deficiency in the human gene pool. It's really interesting to figure out piece by piece what happened on on the ship that the robot lives in. All the characters are in it are really heartfelt and brilliant, um, and it just it just really touched me. It was like a real um, good mix of, of charm, uh, sadness, and yeah, a little bit to think about as well. That that was. What put it at the top of my list? Um, for me, the top of my list is maybe an unconventional choice. Um, it is Oxenfree. Um, so I think I might be showing my age here. But um, the protagonist in Oxenfree, um, not too far off from from my own age, um, in terms of the fact that I can still relate to them. And um, It was a semi-supernatural coming-of-age adventure um, with some puzzling mostly adventuring and i think for me just really hit home um it's coming of age story was really poignant um it dealt with some really really heavy themes but never really felt depressing in that way um a very bittersweet game but just the way that it told the story was incredible i mean most games offer you decision making choices but very few um, I guess have any consequences if you choose to do nothing or, or walk away or or put yourself out of a situation. And I guess in Oxenfree, you can react in so many different ways to the same things. Um, in a game that was about coming of age, it was very fitting that it was all about interpersonal relationships. And having a story told, I think, almost solely through interpersonal relationships between its characters was very interesting for me. Um, one of the few basically games with no combat um, that I play. I love shooting things and stabbing things and so I was surprised that I enjoyed this game so much but Oxenfree really does a good job of telling a story about alternate universes and timelines while keeping it incredibly personal and incredibly meaningful. So if you haven't played it yet I can highly highly recommend it. If you've played Night in the Woods it has a kind of a similar vibe 
Um, definitely is one that will pull the heartstrings a little bit, especially if you're a bit on the younger side of the age spectrum, you might find some of these worries so quite relatable. Um, so yeah, that was my surprise sleeper pick for best story. For my number one pick, uh, it was a hard decision, but I did have to give it to L.A. Noir, which I think is going to surprise a lot of people because uh, uh, L.A. Noir, I think... I want to say is regarded as a bit of a failure in terms of its plot, but I think it's misunderstood. It, it does things that you don't expect a video game to do, which is why I appreciate it. Uh, it. It tells the story of the rise and the fall of a man, and it covers the whole arc of his. Like, If this was any other video game, it would end at the end of the murder case, but the murder desk is the halfway point of the game. It keeps going after that. And I just really admire that they tried to do something new. Uh, every case tells its own story, but it also builds towards the big reveal at the very end of the game, which leads to the, the ultimate case, the final case, where a lot of the missing pieces that you've been finding out along the way that didn't quite connect into the case, it was just extraneous details that were just there, they kind of start to add up towards the end. Like uh, in the very first case, one of the first puzzles you do is you rebuild an insta-heat heater on the side of this woman's house and that just seems like a puzzle but actually instaheat is integral to the big the big plot that you unfoil at the very end of the story and i just i really admire that it's a slow burning story and it really focuses on this one character who isn't even really the hero of the story the hero of the story is another character who you meet later uh but I think if you're looking for something in a video game that tells an unusual story and you haven't played L.A. Noir yet, I think you should look no further. Now we're moving on to best soundtrack. Uh, sometimes the thing that is best remembered about a video game is its soundtrack. Whether it's driving metal, a grand orchestral score, or a crunchy retro chip tune. Soundtracks help to give a video game an identity as much as its visual design and its game design. The next frontier of popular music doubtless lies in video games, and these are our favourite Switch video game soundtracks of this year. Runners-ups, I went for Moon Hunters, which is uh, a electronic fantasy style, very chilled out. Uh, I didn't enjoy the game so much, but I really loved the soundtrack, definitely one of my favourites. Uh, my other runner-up is I Am Sitsuna, which is entirely piano-driven. Um, and it's one of the two that we're going to talk about where the soundtrack is on my iPhone and will likely never leave because I've sort of come accustomed to writing to it. Those are mine. What are your runner-ups? So in terms of best soundtrack for me, um, one of my runner-ups is similar to Andy's, I Am Setsuna. Um As a piano player myself, it really resonated with me. And I think the game had an, had a really good way of using space and in, in its music and its soundtracking, a lot of silence perpetuating the sort of rather solemn and contemplative piano soundtrack. The music completely fit the mood. Um, it was upbeat when it needed to be. It was always in the background, always driving you on. The landmarks and areas had music that was different. Um, but it was all piano-based, so these are all really subtle changes, but it just sort of felt like a very natural progression. It felt like when you were adventuring, the music was changing and growing with you too. It's just, it was really great, really underrated, I think, overall. Um, another soundtrack that I really enjoyed, well, soundtrack, might be using the word 
um, might not be using the right word here, but it is for Voez, which is a rhythm game on the Switch. I think the selection of songs composed for Voez is incredible. You've got a multitude of, you've got basically all the genres that Annie listed above. You've got metal rock music, you've got orchestral music, you've got retro music, you've got drum and bass, you've got dubstep, you've got jazz, um, you've got all sorts of genres and languages when it comes to the music that Boas gives you. The selection is really, truly amazing. Um, and I think in terms of getting bang for your buck for a, a musical game, it really feels like you're playing an instrument when you play Boas as well, and how the game is set up um, to sort of correspond or the instruments that's in the song that you're playing and how you actually play out the quote-unquote keys on the screen. It's all very clever. So for the synchronicity of the music um, with the gameplay, I think Boaz is right up there with my best, with one of my best soundtracks for the year. My first runner-up is going to go to The Mummy Demastered, which is a game, as you know if you've been listening to the podcast, that I came to have severe problems with, but the soundtrack is incredible. Uh, as far as a traditional chiptune soundtrack, the likes of which you might have been able to hear on the Super Nintendo, The Mummy Demastered is very true to that aesthetic. Uh, it sounds absolutely incredible. A uh, friend of mine on Twitter uh, said that he heard it on a live stream and he immediately had to go and find out what this sound this music that he was hearing was and he was like oh it's the mummy demastered and he bought the game purely on that note alone so the mummy demastered is very traditional but it's very good so at least look up the ost online because it's totally worth listening to uh, my second runner-up is the flame in the flood which is a post-apocalyptic game set in the american south and it definitely sells its environment through its use of bluegrass music, which is a traditional uh, American music form somewhere between blues music and country music. Uh, and every time you jump on the raft and you start rocketing down the river, it kicks in with this bluegrass track, and it totally sells the experience. It makes the entire game, frankly, a lot more enjoyable than the game itself actually is uh because sometimes i just want to ride down the river just so i can listen to the music and i don't want to deal with all of the survival aspects so it would be nice if that was actually an option but it's not uh so yeah flame in the flood has an incredible bluegrass soundtrack to it i highly recommend it cool winners uh mine is doom now this is notable for a number of reasons one typically i really hate heavy metal but I've never encountered uh, a soundtrack like this that's so integral to the core gameplay loop of the shooting and the go the glory kills. It's the the music is just constantly there, driving you forward in these big, confusing melees until there's nothing left standing. It just drives me forward constantly. BFG Division is obviously the the killer killer track from that and that has also become one of my riding tracks and mainly a, tra uh, a soundtrack to anything anytime i need to get something done it's just i put that on and i power through it just like i did in the game um my personal favorite was moon hunters um i know that was one of andy's runners up and he didn't enjoy the game that much but i mean i think for an indie game to have 19 original composed orchestral and vocal tracks is amazing 
I think the use of music within the game is incredible. All the maps have their own little tune. And as in the game, which is basically um, self-described as a mythology as a mythology generator with each incarnation of yourself but that you play through the game with, um, it adds to your game's lore, um, to what happens in the game, to the music you hear in the game. Each tribe and character has their own theme song. The people and the different races have their own theme song. It's just the way that music is integrated so flawlessly into both the narrative of the game as well as the mechanics of the game. I thought that was really amazing. And it's just a downright beautiful soundtrack. Um, For me, the minute I loaded up the game and I played my first seven minutes, I lasted a pathetic amount of time, but the music stuck with me, so I went back and downloaded the entire soundtrack online. So um, Moon Hunters really captured me. Um, I recommend the game if you enjoy um, Rogue Lights um, and you're very heavy on creating your own lore. It's a very unique narrative experience and the music is just sublime. For my number one pick of the year, no doubt in my mind, it's Neurovoider, which is a roguelike twin-stick shooter set in a far-flung future where robots have completely taken over the planet and they've turned the entire planet into one big cyberpunk dance party and neurovoider is the perfect soundtrack for that uh (laughs) it's all electronic music it's really hard and driving it really keeps you focused in the moment i listen to it all the time even outside of the game i probably actually listen to the soundtrack more than i've actually played the game uh it's definitely my number one pick and you should seek it out just to listen to it by itself moving on to best visual design Visual design is a tricky but vital element. Video games with high fidelity graphics that try to mimic real life might look great today, but by this time next year they'll already look outdated, as graphical power has continued to grow, but the game remains trapped in the time it was made. Video games with unique and stylish visual design stand the test of time, striving to capture a particular vision rather than general realism, looking great years and even decades down the line. These are the video games which we believe will continue to look great far into the future. And here are our picks. So my runners-up here were... uh, One was a game I haven't bought yet, but I really loved the visual style from the demo I played, and that was for Nine Parchments. Uh, I loved the the key art of the characters and the menus. The in-game stuff looked beautiful too and sort of matched up with the the drawn vision. Uh, And my other one was I Am Setsuna, which is a very bleak game. Uh, it's got a lot of snowy backdrops with the only colour sort of coming through from occasional patches of autumn leaves uh, but it's it's a, a game that sticks to this vision and it does it beautifully I think there's a, there's a kind of uh, serenity that goes with its choice of colour palette and I really appreciate that as well as the retro aesthetic of the, the blocky Playstation era style character models and and JRPG tropes. For my first runner-up, uh, going back to the introduction, which I wrote, by the way, so that's entirely my opinion. You're free to disagree with it. Uh, but I gotta go with Thimbleweed Park. Thimbleweed Park really captures the moment in time that the game is trying to be set in, which was the heyday of the scum engine adventure games. Uh, it, aside from the fact that it's in high definition, you could put this game up against maniac mansion or a day of the tentacle or indiana jones and the fate of atlantis you would not be able to tell the difference it looks exactly like one of those games just 
modernized for the modern era to have high definition graphics and have a little bit cleaner interface it's just absolutely incredible that you sit down to play that game you feel like you're immediately transported back to the 1990s uh and for my other runner-up uh it was close on this one but i put breath of the wild in my runner-up i think much like many of the zelda games which still look great today because they try to capture a stylized aesthetic especially the wind waker and especially a link to the past they still look wonderful because they really capture the art style that they were trying to go for rather than capture realism. Breath of the Wild is the same way. Everything's recognizable as human and everything is recognizable as nature or as animals or as monsters, but it's not going for realism. It's got a style to it, and I think that this style is really going to hold up over time. Um. So my runner-up's here. Um... Like Andy, I included I Am Setsuna for basically the same reason. Um, it was just a huge nostalgia trip design-wise for me as a player of 90s JRPGs. And it stuck to its guns when it came to what it wanted to look like. Um, usually JRPGs often nowadays um, are saturated with colour, with with you know complicated UIs, with just everything under the sun. Um, I Am Setsuna was an incredibly stripped-down JRPG and it really, really worked. As I mentioned, it made use of silence and spacing very well in its soundtrack, and it also made use of um, high contrast color when needed, um, small pops of it here and there, and it somehow managed to make a, a mostly white um, background for the majority of your adventure um, still be exciting and still hold surprises. So that's why it's on my list as a runner-up. My other runner-up is Bell Chef Brigade. As I mentioned earlier, I didn't know that I liked the aesthetic this much, but I adore it. Um, incredibly anime-influenced style with some strangely watercolor-influenced backgrounds. Just the mix of those two styles is beautiful. It works. It sounds like it wouldn't work, but it really does. Um, everything just has its own unique look from the different um, hunt platformers. The hunt, sorry, the mini game hunting platformers that you play to the set design for the different rooms and homes in the main towns, to even the outfits on the different characters and how they're just incredibly stylish or just well stylized, I'd say, in a way that fits their character and their personality. Um, I think it's amazing. I love it. Um, huge soft spot for it. So Battle Chef Brigade is up there on my list as well. Okay, so on to the winners. Uh, I went for Breath of the Wild, basically for everything that Andrew just said. I think the it's almost cell shaded style is gonna last a very, very long time. Uh, every vista, every time you pan that camera, the whole world just looks utterly gorgeous, no matter where you are. Uh, it's obviously more so true when you're on top of a mountain, scouting out everything that you can see, that you can, and you know you can explore it. Um, everything from the the use of color for the different locations, the even just the the color change up in the outfits that that Link wears, rather than just the green tunic, just makes a world of difference and makes everything feel really fresh. Um, my winner was also Breath of the Wild. Um, I thought it was just breathtaking. Um, it sort of caught me from that first moment when I left the shrine, and I thought, you know. I don't know if games could get any more beautiful than this, and it just delivered time after time. 
um, each individual area and town and landscape, they all had their own personality. There's so much detail, you know, like just um, where you go up to like a house real close in Hokkaido Village, you can see where it's been worn down by age. Um, just, you know, beads of water on a water wheel, beads of water on your skin, on the ground, just the way the environments constantly change, you know, what rain looks like even and how everything in the game reacts, different seasons. Um, the design of the Lost Woods, just all these unique individualized environments and all these small touches, like just how things like the rays of sun look so beautiful and even have a narrative function sometimes. I just feel like it was so incredibly well put together and I think it will definitely stand the test of time for sure. So that's why it's my winner. Yeah, the, the draw distance in Breath of the Wild, I don't think anybody has raved enough about that and how integral that is to enjoying the game. And also the use of the color red and blue which is all throughout the game and is so important to finding your way around and determining places you have been to and places you haven't to. Both of those are very important parts of visual design, and I really I haven't read anything yet which has given them the compliments that they deserve. Having said that, my number one pick is Battle Chef Brigade, uh, because everything in this game is hand-drawn and hand-painted, and it just looks incredible. Uh... Not everything is animated, which I think is a slight knock against it, but not everything needs to be animated because most of the characters you go up against, that's all you really do is you go up against them, you talk to them, you see what they're presenting uh, in the competition. But the characters you actually control, which are uh, Mina and Thrash, the animation on them is minimal, but it's lovely. And I just... I really think that all Battle Chef Brigade is going to need on future re-releases, which it's almost certainly going to get is it just needs to be upgraded to 4K and wherever our resolutions go past that. Uh, next up is Most Overlooked. The Switch has had an incredible first year of releases, not just in terms of quality, but also in quantity. Some weeks we've seen over a dozen games released on the eShop. So in this category we'd like to recognise a game that we think didn't get the chance it deserved. It might not be one of the best games of the year, might not even be one of our best games of the year, and we hope that more people will give them a chance. So for runners-up, I've gone with Opus, The Day We Found Earth, a very sto- story-driven game, uh, and my follow-up is a game that I've probably overlooked myself since buying it, Quest of Dungeons. I wish I'd put more time into that. Uh, which is a, There's not enough time. <laughs> there is not. But <laughs> it's a, uh, you know, an old-school turn-based roguelike, uh, and I had a lot of fun with it with the time I did spend on it. Uh, so we'll start with Andrew. What, what were your runners-up? Uh, first runner-up was Quest of Dungeons. Uh, it's a great desktop-style roguelike. Like, if you played Rogue back in the day and you ever got a graphic pack for it, that's basically what the game looks like, is replacing all of those little at signs and the pound signs and the numbers and giving them a, a, just a skin. But other than that, it still runs exactly like an old Rogue, but it strips down all of the stuff that makes Rogue such a, a daunting experience to get into for new players. Like the There's no town to go back to. Uh, there's the character development's way lowered down. You don't have to keep track of so many stats. And all the character classes are really stripped down, and everything you find is actually in the dungeon. Uh and basically your success is going to depend upon what you find, not your ability to hoard. So I just really admire Quest of Dungeons for just how approachable it makes that 
very difficult to get into genre. And my other pick for runner-up is going to be Has Been Heroes, which did not get the best reviews, but I've actually dumped a good 30 hours into it. Uh, it is every bit as hard as it's been described, but I think it's just absolutely brilliant in concept. You play as these... You take control of this party of has-been heroes. There are these old knights and wizards who are no longer actively in service to their king, but the other people in the kingdom are not available anymore, so these has-been heroes have to team up with this fangirl rogue to escort the princesses to school. And the first thing that happens when they walk out the door is they're all attacked by a necromancer, and that's the entire plot, is escorting the princesses to school. So I just I love how offbeat that is and it's a really good strategy time management game you should you should give it a chance if you see it on sale i don't think it got the fair shot it deserved in terms of games that i think didn't get a fair shot per se i'm gonna have to say moon hunters again sound like a broken record but it really is a great game um i think it does very good things with um the rogue light subgenre um, and its way of telling a narrative and involving players in its creation of the game's narrative is quite unique. Um, I like that the game is so heavy on lore. I'm a lore nerd. Um, so if you are a lore junkie like myself, you will also love it. Um, the art style is impeccable. I just feel like it came out at a time whereby a lot of other AAA games for the Switch were coming out, so it was quite underlooked, at least in terms of sales. And it's really not that expensive, so I highly recommend picking it up if you feel the inclination to. Um, another game that I think was overlooked um, is I Am Setsuna. Definitely one of the least popular JRPGs that are out there on the Switch or um, for some unknown reason. Um, I know it sort of hasn't, it didn't have the, r the real sort of heavy marketing and big bucks production that other JRPGs that are more popular on the Switch have. But as Andy and I have said already throughout this podcast episode so far, it really is a stunner. Um, it tells a great story. Um, I think most people are often put off by how long JRPGs can be. Um, you'll be pleased to know that I Am Setsuna is not um, of the Xenoblade or Persona 5 variety when it comes to length. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's a really nice bite, um, a real nice bite-sized window into JRPGs. And for all I've said about it being solemn, um, it definitely isn't a game that's downtrodden. Definitely is a game that feels very hopeful. So I think it's been criminally underlooked as well for its genre on the store. Those are my two choices. Cool. In terms of uh, my winner for this one, I've gone with Kamiko, which is a super cheap Zelda-like, I'd call it. Uh, it's... You can beat it in, in an afternoon three times and get your money's worth and, and be done with it. But I really enjoyed what I, I played. So you basically run around this world at high speed, collecting all the items and beating the bosses. And you do that three times with three different characters, with three different playstyles. Really enjoyable. Great soundtrack. Nice style. Totally recommend it. It's, it's worth your afternoon for sure. Uh, Ginny, what was your winner? Um, my choice was Kamiko as well, um, basically for the same reasons, again, like a broken record, but I just thought it was amazing. Um, for me, it was just the, the quality for the price point was really great. Um, the story is a bit bizarre. You're a modern day schoolgirl who suddenly discovers that they are a magical shrine maiden 
and they are tasked with defeating all these bosses in this alternate universe um, of Shrine Maidens, and that's very loosely based on folklore um, in Japan. Um, nothing particularly complex when it comes to a narrative, but as Andy said, um, you gotta go fast, and you gotta slash things, slash stab things, slash shoot things. Um, it's really adorable, really incredible. Um, I play it um, sort of as like a, like, it's like a coffee break game for me. You can sort of pick it up, do a couple stages of a level here and there, put it down. Um, it's really fun, really adorable, and I highly recommend it. It is super cheap. My number one most overlooked, I feel, is Snake Pass, which I describe as an anti-platformer. Uh, it is built like other 3D platformers where you're in an environment and you have to find all of the collectibles inside the environment. Where it is not like a platformer is you play as a snake who cannot jump. Uh, you are a constrictor, so how you get around is you wrap yourself around things, and that is how you quote-unquote platform. Uh, so let's say you're at a bridge. Now, if you're playing Mario 64, uh, the bridge is out, and you just long jump across it, you grab your power star. Snake Pass makes you approach this in a completely different way, because since the bridge is out, you can't just crawl across it, but you're also a snake, so you can't jump. So you have to work your way around all of the struts that hold up what is left of the bridge and wrap yourself around them and support your weight as you slowly work your way up. It makes you completely reevaluate the way you would normally play a platformer. I think it's absolutely brilliant, and I don't think it got the attention it deserves. Maybe I'm wrong about that. Maybe it sold really well. I just didn't ever really see anybody talking about it. I think it's great. On to best last gen port. The Switch has proved a popular and lucrative home for titles from past consoles, the added portability breathing new life into old favourites. Whether it's the legendary 7th generation of games or Wii U titles which nobody really had a chance to play, this category highlights the most successful of these titles from yesteryear. Runner-ups, I have gone with Pokémon Tournament DX. This was a game I, I've said already I've criminally underplayed on the Wii U. Uh, I picked it up again. It's a fantastic port, but I'm finding myself criminally underplaying it again. Uh, I need to fix that over the Christmas break. The other game I opted for here was L.A. Noir. Uh, it's a game I have very mixed feelings on. We've discussed this in a previous show, but I think as a port, it's very admirable. Uh, it's at least as good as it was originally, uh, and it runs really well, and it's really cool just to see Rockstar's open-world engine running on the console even though it's not the best use of the open world um for me personally my runner-ups for best last import would be as any say pokemon tournament i am a pokemon fan slap pokemon or anything i'll buy it so it's probably why i've picked pokemon tournament here but um i think it was received pretty well when it came out even amongst a host of other bigger games um i think what they've done with the rollouts of contents patches and cosmetics um is really good obviously they're seeing a demand from players in the game and they're fulfilling that demand and i think it's been really well maintained and also luchador pikachu is ridiculously adorable it looks great it feels great um it's amazing my other last import runner-up would be skyrim um, as I said before in the podcast, I never quote-unquote finished Skyrim, at least got to got very far into the plot line when I played it on other platforms. Um, but something about Skyrim on the Switch, maybe it's the portability, maybe it's just, oh, this is shiny and new again. 
Um, it's been compelling me to play. I think the game looks amazing um, for what it is on the handheld. Um, it just feels like it's found its home. I love that I can just pick it up with me and go anywhere. And I mean, honestly, if you look at the quality of the game compared to its original release, I think graphically the Switch version is actually more impressive. Um, I think it's definitely seen a resurgence. You know, there are tons of Skyrim fans who hasn't played this RPG, honestly. So I think it was a commercially smart move. Um, great game, and I will slowly, slowly keep working my way through it. My first runner-up is L.A. Noir. Uh, it plays identically, near as I can tell, to the Xbox 360 version. What more can you ask from a port? I mean, it, it it's L.A. Noir, and it's portable, and it, otherwise it's exactly the same game. That's a great package right there. If you haven't played L.A. Noir, now's your chance. And I've been saying this since before the Switch was even released. The Switch is going to be Nintendo's chance to introduce players to games that were on the Wii U that were critically acclaimed that a lot of people didn't get to play. We've seen that with Splatoon. We've seen that with Pokken. I'm sure we're going to see that very soon with Mario Maker and with Super Smash Bros. 4. So naturally, my other best last-gen port is Mario Kart 8 Deluxe. As I said previously, it's the best Mario Kart game ever made, and now it's actually on a system that people actually own. It's astounding. So go ahead and pick that up if you haven't yet. Cool. So in terms of winners, uh, I went with the game that Ginny was just talking about, Skyrim, Elder Scrolls V. Basically put an RPG on a handheld system, and I'm ten times more likely to play it, and even revisit in this case... I love Skyrim. I know it's unpopular to say, but I love it so much. And like Ginny, I think it looks better on the Switch than it did in its original format. I I think it's comparable to the remasters without having the mods and the bells and whistles that come along with all that. Uh, and I think it's a perfect home for it. Like just just being able to explore this this vast world, interact with all these great characters on the go at work on the bus is just utterly fantastic easily my choice and i think it's the most polished port out of every every port we've seen so far i echo those thoughts i also picked the elder scrolls 5 skyrim it's an amazing port of an amazing game this was already one of my favorite games of all time uh, i've been playing this game for over 90 hours now on the switch i haven't had one hard crash so you know that's uh, that's some quality work there from bethesda who are normally have uh I would say an overstated reputation for the stability of their games. Uh, I am playing it on Switch in a way I've never played Skyrim before. Usually what I do is I'll pick a quest chain and I'll follow it through to the end. I'll fast travel all over the place just to get it over with as fast as I can. In the Switch version, in Switchrim, just by the nature of the platform that it's on, I'm playing it very differently, as I'm going to each area, which is the next step in the main quest line, but I'm doing everything there is to do there. I'm exploring all the nearby tombs, I'm doing all the local people's quests, and as I said, I have spent more than 90 hours into the game, but in the main quest, I haven't even encountered Parthenax yet, because just the way I'm playing it, and it's a revelation. I now understand why people are so excited about these Elder Scrolls games, because it's so much more fun to just explore the world. Before, when I was playing Skyrim, I would go straight to do the Thieves Guild, or I'd go straight to do the Dark Brotherhood quest, but I would fast travel into town. So I would actually walking into Riften this time, and I discovered, even though I've played Skyrim for literally hundreds of hours in other platforms, I had no idea what the outside of Riften looked like. 
and I have discovered it in Switch, and it's just, it's great. It's the best way to play Skyrim as far as I'm concerned. It's easily my winner for best last-gen port. No contest. Um, for me, my personal favorite last-gen port was not Skyrim. Um, as you could tell, but it was actually <laughs> it was actually Eleanor. So Eleanor is a game that I loved. Um, again, perhaps um, one of the minority who actually really, really enjoyed it, flaws and all just like Andrew. Um, and I think that the reason why it beat out Skyrim for best last import for me was it just felt like it really, really integrated everything the Switch had to offer. So in terms of having the touchscreen functionalities um, and everything feeling tactile, so when you investigate now, um, I know Andrew hates using the touchscreen, but um, for me, investigating and sort of pushing and pulling pages and being able to zoom in and look at particular things and just sort of really feel like I'm actually at the crime scene touching things and actually getting in amongst the evidence you know that sort of brought a whole new dimension um to the investigation process for me so i really feel like um eleanor has made the most of coming to the switch um skyrim obviously is a beautiful game as i've already said i love playing it portably but it just hasn't sort of taken to the next level where it's using pretty much every single function available to the console so for me, Eleanor, flawed story and all, it is my best last import. I have so many fond memories of that game. Um, and while I might be taking it slower this time, um, and doing what Andy has done, which treating it like a sort of like a TV serial, um, I am enjoying it just as much, if not a lot more. And I think it definitely has earned um, the best last import title from me. Cool. Now we're moving on to best indie. Nintendo has famously been courting indie developers for the Switch, and this year's releases show it with multiple indie titles arriving on a weekly basis. Often targeted at niche audiences, big publishers are unwilling to serve. Indies increasingly dominate our conversations and our wallets, and it's looking more and more like the future will be independent. In this category, we recognise our favourite releases from these developers. Uh, My runner-ups here, I've got Wolverblade, which is a fantastic, challenging, and beautiful art-style beat-em-up, side-scrolling beat-em-up, uh, focusing on real hi- real life history elements and maybe some mythology too. Uh, my other one is SteamWorld Dig 2, uh, follow-up to a hugely popular 3DS game, which I originally disliked, but I replayed in the run-up to SteamWorld Dig 2 and enjoyed the second time. Absolutely adore the sequel, just the way it adds more it makes the exploration more expansive i was hankering for a, a metroidvania style game i hate that term but i'm going to use it uh and that just sort of scratched the edge for me it was fantastic um my runner-ups were bell chef brigade as mentioned earlier um it surprised me in terms of how much i actually end up enjoying it um but it is a mishmash of all the genres i love the most i love cooking games like cooking mama i love mastery games like candy crush um shamefully and I also love anime. So everything from the art style to the the story to all the little touches in the game from the characters, the outfits, everything. It just felt so well put together, you know. It just felt so well produced. And so quality-wise and just entertainment-wise, it's up there for me. My other choice for best indie was Cat Quest. So this one occupied a spot very close to my heart because as the proud owner of cats, um, I obviously love the feline species 
Um, and anything adorable, anything RPG like, you know, 100% up my alley. I also love horrible dad jokes and puns. So Cat Quest occupy that, that spot for me too. Um, for me, it is a great indie, um, notably so because it was created by a very small Singaporean team. Singapore is my hometown, so I felt a bit of patriotic pride when I heard about that. You don't often get Singaporean games on any console, any store, with any exposure whatsoever, but Cat Quest has gone, you know, has grown leaps and bounds in terms of its fan base, in terms of being a very popular game. So for me, it's one of my runner-ups for best indie. Uh, I've got a runner-up from each of your runners-up. My first runner-up is Battle Chef Brigade. I was sorely tempted to put this one as my best indie just because I was so impressed with how well everything clicked. But I've beaten Battleship Brigade, and I don't see myself returning to it. Uh, my other runner-up is SteamWorld Dig 2, which took the SteamWorld Dig game, which I liked the concept of, but I didn't like the execution, and fixed the execution. I love the execution of SteamWorld Dig 2. It's uh, an exploration platformer, which is the genre I just made up to replace Metroidvania, because I also don't like that term. Uh, and it all works so well. There's so much more depth to it with the RPG systems, how you can invest in upgrades, but you can't actually use them all this time around. You have to actually pick and choose. So it makes you specifically develop the character who's going to work for you the way you want to play the game instead of just getting every upgrade that's available because you can. And I love it when a game does that. It actually makes you make difficult decisions. And difficult decisions should be something that every video game offers. Cool. And uh, in terms of winners, I've opted for one of Ginny's runners-up, which is Cat Quest. I love cats. I love RPGs. It's a match made in heaven, seriously. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love cat-related puns. That's in there too. Uh, and I just love the way that it um, really streamlined the RPG tropes and systems and, and just made them really digestible into this little short positive experience i really enjoyed that um for me my personal best indie was not on anyone's list um but it was golf story um as i mentioned before i hate actual golf but inexplicably loved golf story and just for the game for winning my heart alone i think it deserves best indie um incredibly well produced once again like battle chef brigade from a tiny australian team um, it just had so much character and so much flair, and the fact that it sort of turned me on to a sport that I absolutely loathe um, single-handedly. It's very impressive. So, Golf Story, you've got my award for Best Indie. For my pick for Best Indie, we've got to go clear back to the launch month of the Switch, where I picked The Binding of Isaac Afterbirth Plus, which is probably of all the games on the eShop the most egregious example of the Nintendo text, because it's a full $40 for this game, whereas you can get it on almost every other platform for less than 5 if you know what you're doing. Uh, but it is an incredible game. I don't think that needs to be stated. Uh, it's one of the most popular indies ever made because it offers incredible depth and a vast amount of content, and you can just keep going back and going back and going back into it and constantly discovering new things. I can't recommend it enough, and it really is no surprise that it ended up at the top of my indie picks, because I will put a lot of time on the front end into games like Skyrim and Breath of the Wild, but once I'm done with those games, I'm done with them. I don't play them again, because I feel I've done everything there is to do in them. A game like Binding of Isaac, I feel like I could play 
in perpetuity and still never see everything that it has to offer. So I love that. So it's easily my best indie. Uh, and now just before we go into the, the main event and, and detailing our game of the year, or our, our personal games of the year, uh, we're just going to run through our top three quickly. We could easily offer a long list of favourite video games released in the Switch's unprecedented first year, but we wanted to challenge ourselves a bit and just choose just two runners-up and then our overall favourite. Don't let this uh, mean that we thought other titles were not as amazing as well, merely that in such an incredible year of releases, these were the ones that were particularly incredible. So my top three here are Breath of the Wild, Super Mario Odyssey, and Doom. Andrew, what was yours? Breath of the Wild, Elder Scrolls V Skyrim, and The Binding of Isaac Afterbirth Plus. And Judy? And my top three, unsurprisingly, Breath of the Wild, Super Mario Odyssey, and I Am Setsuna. Out of those, what were our personal game of the year? I went for Breath of the Wild. I had a very tough choice between my top three, because I loved them all for very different reasons. But Breath of the Wild just stole something like 120 hours of my time and it felt like 10 minutes I just, I had something I can look past it. I do play games that are not Switch games, I do I, I just, because I'm doing this podcast I don't talk about them, so people might think that I only play Switch games, but I don't, and even factoring in all those other games I played on other platforms this year, the gulf between my number one pick and my number two pick is the Grand Canyon uh, I struggled with this all year where I was thinking, am I being a fanboy? Uh, am I just in a super honeymoon period with this game? But the feeling has never gone away. Breath of the Wild is not just my game of the year. I think it's my favorite game of all time. Wow. Oh. <laughs> Big call, but I, I think it would take me a little while longer to come to that conclusion, but I think it's going to be up there. I've str- I've struggled all year not to not to just gush effusively about it because I do want to give it time to see if I I flip on it or I I do start to recognize something later on about it that I don't like as much. My my best example is Mass Effect 1, which used to be one of my favorite games of all time. Now when I talk about Mass Effect 1, all I can do is talk about all the things in it I don't like. Maybe that will happen with Breath of the Wild. I don't I'm not confident it will. And Jenny, what was your game of the year? So, my game of the year um, was Super Mario Odyssey. This was a really tough one. (laughs) Um, It was really hard to decide between that and Breath of the Wild. As everyone already knows, if they've listened to this podcast at all for any amount of time, I love Breath of the Wild. But Super Mario Odyssey was just that love letter to all the games of my childhood that I had enjoyed, particularly because in Super Mario, um, Sunshine and Galaxy were just some of my faves. And so for me, that it occupied that extra spot of nostalgia. And I mean, I think the way I felt um, during that new Donk moment um, was just just incredible. Um, and the game just kept kept growing and building and delivering. And while Breath of the Wild was a very emotional game for me and a very satisfying game for me, and a game that I'm currently still playing because the Champions Ballad DLC is amazing, um, 
Super Mario Odyssey um, is definitely going to have to be my pick because it just meant so much to me on an individual level and it was just an incredibly rewarding experience and I highly recommend it to anyone who hasn't played it. Although if you haven't played it, I mean, come on, what have you been doing this year? Uh, you couldn't just tow the company line, could you? <laughs> no, unfortunately. As far as I'm concerned, every Switch should come with Breath of the Wild pre-installed on it and it should not be able to come off. <laughs> it's not you two anyway <laughs> and that brings us to the end of not only this episode uh, but also of 2017 thanks for listening to our game of the year episode of Switch Workers podcast uh, we're going to be off for the rest of the year but we're going to return mid-January with more thoughts on the Switch's new releases news and announcements if you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on iTunes. It'll really help us get noticed. You can also listen, subscribe on Stitcher, TuneIn, and other podcast services. Why not check out our YouTube channel, where we regularly upload the first hour of many of the games we play, which may change depending on the net neutrality thing in America. Oh, <laughs> Let's stay see tuned. how that goes. Wow. Mm. Uh, and you can also follow us on Twitter, at SwitchFocusPod, YouTube, Facebook, and at SwitchFocusPodcast.com for updates, news, and other content. Don't forget you can follow the three of us individually on Twitter. I'm at Flame Roast Toast. Andrew is at Play Critically. And Ginny is at Ginny Woes. 